So today is a special day in the Buddhist tradition. It's called Losar, and it's the uh, Tibetan New Year. And as a way of honoring the Tibetan New Year, it's a bit of a, a sense of joy and sorrow. There's a, an honoring uh, the spirit of the Tibetan culture, the freedom that's really um, taught and practiced and innate and as expressed by the Dalai Lama. And also a sense of the, um, the sadness of how much loss there's been to that culture. And so in honor of Losar, we're going to just to ask you just to kind of sense your heart and your prayer and we'll light a candle let our community as a collected sangha honor this day of the Tibetan New Year blessings and prayers So we've been doing a, what I call a four-week series, and if you haven't been to the others, it's fine. They, each class will somewhat stand on its own, on what are called the divine abodes in the Buddhist tradition. And what that means is these are the expressions of the awakened heart. These are, as the more and more our heart becomes free, these are the natural ways that our heart experiences life. And the first of the divine abodes is loving-kindness. And that's what arises when we have the eyes and the wisdom to see the goodness and the sacred that shines through all beings. We naturally feel a sense of connection and love. And the second of the divine abodes is compassion, as we explored last week. And compassion is really the quality of heart that is aroused whenever we see suffering. It's just a natural resonance of the heart. And the third of the divine abodes is joy. It's called mudita, that's the Pali word, and that's what we'll be exploring tonight. And then next week, equanimity, um, which is really the quality of wisdom and balance and inclusiveness that allows us to really have a pure expression of any of those other qualities of heart. So joy, I think of as including both the qualities of love and compassion, we experience joy when there's a real openness that both sees the beauty and also sees the pain. So joy is an expansive feeling. It's not like a happy, happy because things are all good. It's truly that heart that can include this living, dying, mysterious, beautiful, sad and sacred world. The Taoists put it the best. They say the 10,000 joys and sorrows. It's just that vastness of heart. So joy arises when there truly is no resistance, when there's truly no resistance to exactly how life is. And that doesn't mean we can't respond in a way to deal with injustice and suffering, but it means that in the moment there's an absolute openness, a courage that says, oh, it's like this, that vastness of heart. So it comes from a sense of completeness, of inclusion and wholeness. And another way of describing it is it happens when there's a lack of preoccupation. Joy is possible when we're not caught in that selfing, I sometimes call it, where it's just like the world is all riveted around what will make me more comfortable or what's going to help me feel better in this moment or what, how am I going to avoid fail? There's not that me, me, me. There's more space. 
So in, uh, in Pali, the word modita refers to this joy in the awakening, awakening to the life that's within us, and it's joy in other people's joy, sympathetic joy. So a dear friend called me today and she had just gotten back from the hospital where she had been with a family friend who's 97 and now dying. And people die in different ways and this woman was having the, the grace to have had a lot, of, a lot of the personality kind of grasping, edgy stuff fall away and was really kind of glowing. And she described how this woman, she was lucid and then not lucid, but she kept saying, hooray for you, and hooray for me. And then a little while later she'd go, hooray for you. And she was just in this, like, celebrating the beingness that was there. And, you know, I thought, well, if all I could say in this whole talk was, you know, hooray for us, you know, in the biggest way. It's like, really, joy is saying yes to life. It's like in some profound way for all the stuff of life. And we know there can be horror and misery. In some deep way we're still saying yes to this incredible, mysterious, infinitely expressing existence. Yes. So if our meditation gets quite simple and it's really just continuing to come into presence and notice what's happening and say yes, that's a joy of meditation. And you might be saying yes to physical pain or saying yes to a loss or saying yes to a sense of ecstasy and it doesn't matter the, sub- the object, it doesn't matter the actual specifics, what matters is that yesness. So this is um, Gide who writes, Know that joy is rarer, more difficult and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must enjoy, embrace joy as a moral obligation. So, to me, the use of the word obligation is not a should in the traditional sense. It's not like saying, you should be happy or you should be joyful. More what it is, is saying we have a deep commitment to exploring this capacity because we intuit its possibility we intuit that when we get quiet and stop fighting and controlling and doing our life so much that there's an innate capacity in this very heart to feel joy. So there's a commitment to feeling the wholeness of who we are, to discovering that. So Gide says it's rare and it's true it's rare. I sometimes when I'm about to give a talk on joy, know that inside so many of our minds we're thinking, well, this is for other people. That's just not a state of mind that I get much, you know. And um, I know when I talk to people and we start sharing about it, some people have glimmers, but it's not such a, a continuous or ongoing thing. It's not so well known, this joy. There's too much time being spent trying to manage our lives So you can't experience joy in the moments that there's judging or managing or reacting going on. So we see more joy in children, really. You know, it's not that children don't have their wants and they're trying to manipulate and so on, but there's more space where there is a kind of natural spontaneity and playfulness 
and you just see that yes to life there. And when we see it, it brings up mudita, the sympathetic joy, because it's, it's kind of contagious, you know, when we see joy. A lot of us get it with our dogs. That's our hit, you know, because we see joy, the, you know, the wild animal abandon and, and enjoyment, and, that's, and that kind of, in a sense, reminds us. Picasso said, the first half of my life I tried painting in a mature way, and the second half was learning to paint like a child. So we'll explore a little more about joy. I always begin with what gets in the way because if we can sense what's getting in the way, that very awareness kind of wakes us up out of a small-mindedness. So in the Buddhist terms, there's a near enemy to joy. It's a shadow side. And there's a near enemy to love and a near enemy to compassion. The near enemy to love is that attachment or dependence on certain people, wanting things to be a certain way. And the near enemy or shadow of compassion is pity, where we feel bad for people, but it's like, well, I'm here and you're there and poor you. Not the sense of it's our fear that belongs to all of us. Well, the near enemy, our shadow of joy, is kind of a fixation on on trying to get the excitement or trying to extract the the fun or the goodness. It's kind of a it's a kind of an attachment or an addiction to good feelings. I've seen it with new romantic infatuations, and it doesn't. And it, what it means is you can't actually enjoy. Um, one friend was in a new relationship, I think it was about last year, and she was excited, but each step she was always aware of the what's next because it was like, is this going to be the one? So it was never just a pure, undiluted enjoyment of this moment. There was always some monitoring to see if this person was going to become the permanent relationship. There was like that feeling. And we know it. Whenever there's an attachment to this good feeling, whether it's an attachment to uh, feeling happiness through getting a raise in a salary or recognition from a significant person, that very attachment prevents that openness of a really enjoying moments. There's a cartoon I saw some way of this dog who's contented and sleeping and there's, he's, he's having a dream about a bone and it says, Zen dog dreaming of a medium-sized bone, <laughs> you know. It's like it's, it's not grasping, you know. And we know with full-blown addictions, like when there's this real chasing after a hit or a fix of anything, whether it's sex or food or possessions or anything, that if you physicalize the posture of attachment. There's a leaning forward and a tightness and a holding that's very different from that open, in the moment, joyful feeling. So the full shadow side of joy, which I think is really, really interesting, and I'm finding it more and more in many of us, is an actual pushing away of enjoyment. There's kind of an aversion to happiness because there's this belief that it's dangerous to relax and really take it all in. And so just take, a, just take a, a bit to kind of consider this, because usually we think, well, I want to be happy. But in some way, if there's a sense of undeserving, like I don't deserve love or I don't deserve um, to be respected or I don't deserve to have fun, like in some way if we have that idea we're in the red and have to make up for something, we don't really allow ourselves 
that full relaxing and opening to the goodness. Like something in us is still tense and trying to prove something or do something more so that we can deserve, so that we can relax. Does that make sense? I'm noticing it more and more. So we keep our guard up because there's this sense that if we really relax and enjoy something bad will happen because somewhere in our history bad things we did get caught unaware. Maybe as a child we were being spontaneous and playful and joyful and somebody nailed us for something, you know? And then our nervous system learned that it's not safe. So there's a mistrust sometimes of enjoying and even in, in many uh, of the religions a sense that it's, um, it's, there's an evilness to it. There's a lot that's, that's really wrapped around enjoying. Now some of you will remember this, but for the sake of you new folks, this is one of my favorite stories. A new young monk arrives at the monastery. He's assigned to help other monks in copying the old canons and laws of the church by hand. He notices, however, that all the monks are copying from copies, not the original manuscript. So the new monk goes to the abbot to question this, pointing out that if someone made even a small error in the first copy, it would never be picked up. In fact, that error would be continued in all subsequent copies. The abbot says, well, we've been copying from copies for centuries, but you make a good point. So he goes down into the dark caves underneath the monastery where the original manuscript is held in a locked vault that hasn't been opened for hundreds of years. Hours go by and nobody sees the old abbot. Eventually the young monk gets worried, so he goes down to see what's happening and he sees him banging his head against the wall and crying uncontrollably. The young monk asks the old abbot, Father, Father, what's wrong? And in a choking voice the old abbot replies, The word is celebrate. (laughs) So part of this selfing, this self-preoccupation is thinking, gotta do it right, I'm gonna do something wrong, we get very, very wrapped up of being on our way somewhere else trying to check things off lists and there's something about really arriving right here and allowing ourselves to actually rest in awareness, rest with the breath, enjoy the seasons, let in love. It doesn't feel safe enough. So we steam on. Four older Jewish women meet for lunch at a deli in Miami. The waiter comes over to their table to greet them. Good afternoon, ladies. Is anything okay? (laughs) I get to do it because I'm ethnically, culturally Jewish from all sides, so I get to do that joke. (laughs) Otherwise, I would be against it. In other words, the only, I can't tell a joke like that unless I'm Jewish. That was all I was saying. But I'm Jewish, Buddhist, whatever. So, so let me name the primary ways that we shut down from joy. The single biggest kind of block is judging. That when in any moment we're judging ourselves or judging someone else, our hearts are not able to feel joy. That is the single biggest 
kind of ongoing process that blocks joy. Often that judging takes the form of kind of a mental obsession. But sometimes it's just this kind of ongoing, I don't like this, I don't like that, I like this, I don't like that. And we see a person and in some way there's a quick filter of what we like and what we don't like. And then in a deeper way, as many of us know, when in some way we're carrying a resentment, that really shuts us down. I I like the way Joko Beck says it. She's a, a Buddhist teacher. She says, our failure to know joy is a direct reflection of our inability to forgive. So if we scan our lives and sense, is there anyone that we're pushing out of our hearts? And it doesn't have to be a big violation and a major forgiving, but anybody that in some way we've written off. It doesn't matter if we're not thinking about that person in the moment, but part of our being is closed. We can't feel the fullness of joy. So joy doesn't pretend that everyone's acting in a healthy way or that we feel good. Okay? Joy is the space that includes the imperfections. It's that deep sense of honoring life in a very, very basic way. So let me ask you to reflect for a moment, just to check in. Because we've been kind of exploring a little bit of the shadow side of joy, what gets in the way, and sometimes it's that we're chasing after things. It's like, my life's not okay, I need more of something. And at other times it's we're pushing away things, including other people, with our judgments. And in any given moment, in any given moment, like right now, what can separate us from joy is that what's going on inside us feels not okay. It's we're wanting it different. So the inquiry right now for you is, what is between me and feeling joy? right this moment. Is there some sense that something's wrong or something's missing? If you look at your pattern of living today, yesterday, What's been between you and joy? Has there been preoccupation, a fear of not doing well enough? Has there been obsessing? Has there been blaming? Has there been anger? Has there been a kind of depression that's pushed under life? The first step to awakening our hearts to joy is just to notice habitually our particular pattern of either pushing away life or grasping that keeps us tight. So open your eyes when you'd like. So now we're going to explore how really we can re-enter the stream, what allows for the arising of joy. And I'm going to um, address four different domains 
that are really ways of paying attention that help to reawaken us to this possibility of joy. And the first one I'll describe is this open presence, is saying yes to exactly what's right here. And that's what I tried to emphasize in our meditation and that's a, re- that's a regular part of our practice here. And the second area that I'll describe is an open presence, not to necessarily just what's right here in terms of this breath or this sound, but to the sense of possibility itself, opening to possibility. Because we often have an idea of this is how my life is. So what does it mean to really open to possibility? And the third way of awakening joy is by appreciating in the moments that joy does arise. And the fourth is by expressing joy, that when there's a feeling to express it. So those are the four categories we'll go over tonight. Okay, the first one is saying yes to what's right here. And the phrase that Pema Chodron, wonderful teacher, coined is just you start right where you are. And so that rather than thinking something's in the way, like this anger's in the way, or this hurt's in the way, or this pain in my back's in the way, this becomes the way. It's not in the way, it becomes the way, because our practice is truly to befriend what's here. One woman at a retreat had a really rough time, a lot of ups and downs, but the instructions as we give over and over again are just to recognize and allow to say yes to what's here, that presence. And so she was present with grief and she was present with anger and she was present with pain of sitting, again, pain in the back. And she was present with a feeling of um, wonder at the beauty outside at this retreat center. And she just had all these ups and downs, but the common denominator was whatever it was, she was saying yes to it. Yes to the joys and yes to the sorrows. And at the end of the retreat, in an interview, her comment was, I'm realizing that the joy comes from getting real. That it wasn't, oh, this is a fabulous feeling, or oh, this is a painful feeling. It was the, the realness of being present itself. There is a challenge that we encounter, because being real means opening to inner experience that we are conditioned to not like and to want to push away. And I think this is probably the edge of all spiritual practice, is how do you become okay about what feels not okay? Right? So if joy means you have to include everything, it's really how do you find a way to befriend what by our conditioning we tense against? I feel like that's the biggest question. And the response, I would say, is that even though we're conditioned to not like certain things, we have a very, very deep impulse in us towards freedom. We've got something in us that would rather be real than to feel better in the moment. And we don't always feel that way, but that's very deep in us. And the more we learn to be present, the more we value the realness, we value truth more than we value feeling good in the moment. So that's kind of a a clue. Carl Jung put it this way. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not so popular. (laughs) Joseph Goldstein, who has taught here, and many of you know, a wonderful Dharma teacher, was describing his own process in this 
where he was working with Sayadaw Pandita, who's a Burmese teacher. And he's a very, very strict teacher. And, and Joseph would go into interviews and Upandita would, would point out all the defilements in his mind. The defilements is all the conditioning and reactivity. And he had a very, he was like a mirror to all the stuff, all this kind of human stuff that was going on in Joseph's mind. And for a while, Joseph really hated those interviews because he would get that stuff pointed out and he felt like Upandita was being judgmental and he was judging himself and it was a miserable experience. And then something shifted. And in one interview, this is what Joseph writes, when Sayadaw proceeded to list all the defilements in my mind, I just started to laugh. I saw, yes, that's what's there, all right. It took a while, but when I was eventually able to let go of feeling judged, I could also let go of self-judgment. When you get to that place in your practice, it is a huge opening. When we stop judging ourselves and we actually delight in seeing what is in our minds, even the negativities, we would much rather see the defilements than not see them. It is a kind of joy, which is why I could laugh when they were illuminated." Every one of us has this conditioning in our mind to feel shame or feel aggression or feel aversion or fear or or craving. It's it's going on in all our minds. Now, if we take it personally and judge it and think it shouldn't be there, then we're going to be at war with ourselves. In the moments that we can see this human stuff going on in us, and not take it so personally, just really allow it to be there in awareness. There's a freedom that really is joyful. There's a sense of the space and the freedom is we no longer feel hooked by the sense of something's wrong with me. The suffering is every one of us has this conditioning and our habit is to think I'm bad. We know in our hearts of hearts how selfish we are, how preoccupied we are, how many moments we're concerned with moi. We all know that. But if we think that's bad, it shouldn't be that way, I don't like myself for it, there's no joy. If we can begin to go, okay, but Joseph laughed or we can be curious or whatever, but okay, it's just the human conditioning going on, then we're no longer hitched to it. It's not like our identity is defined by it. That's freedom. I've seen over and over again how the most profound spiritual unfolding comes when, and it happens often at retreats or when people are in a place where they're really paying attention to their inner process, where, where someone hits something like, I'm ashamed of this or I'm afraid of this or I can't forgive so and so. They hit that wall and then there's a willingness to stay and stay and in some way bring compassion to those feelings and not think I'm bad and then give them space and then what happens is they discover that who they are is not the ashamed person or fearful person or bad person who they are is resting in that awareness and compassion there's a shift in identity and this is really the precursor to joy when there's that shift in identity and we wake up out of this story of a small, deficient self and just become that compassionate space, there's a tremendous freedom. Then Sri Narsargadatta put it best, 
the, the sign of this shift in identity is truly there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with me any longer. It doesn't mean that we don't see that the personality and the body has stuff going on, it's just that we're not taking it personally. This is sometimes called egolessness, where there's just not so much identification with the small self and there's more freedom to shine. So I want to read Pema Chodron again. She says, Egolessness has been compared to the rays of the sun. With no solid sun, the rays just radiate outward. In the same way, wakefulness naturally radiates out when we're not so concerned with ourselves. Egolessness is the same thing as basic goodness, our Buddha nature, our unconditional being. It's what we always have and never really lose. It's this space of selfless presence that's inherently joyful. So it's interesting to sense, and I invite you to, the moments when you felt a glimmer of or a deep sense of joy. And you might just take a moment and reflect and sense, well, when does that happen? When do you feel that kind of um, spaciousness, that yes to life, that loving life? For some it may be that you can't find a time and that's okay because many of us there's not a lot of joy. But if you can sense a time or sense when you've had a glimmer of that kind of freedom that embraces life, not because something particular good has happened, because there's just the space in the heart. And if you begin to investigate when there's joy, what's happening? you can begin to sense that there's not a preoccupation with self in those moments. There's not a self that's wanting something. There's not a self that's fearing something. In a way, there's just a freedom from any notion of self. Joy is the freedom that comes when we're not centralized and located in that identity of self. And the pathway is moment by moment. And I invite you to just check it out right now. Just noticing what's happening right here. And sense what it means to really say yes to exactly what's happening right here. The self solidifies when we resist what's happening here and dissolves when we say yes to what's happening here. So to notice what's the experience in your body. Can you say yes to the exact sensations that are predominant in your body? Truly allow them. To feel the mood in the heart right now and whether the mood is excited or sad, anxious or peaceful, 
How deeply can you say yes to that? Just totally letting life be as it is in this heart, this moment. Yes creates space. Yes dissolves the selfing and allows us to inhabit our vastness. Taking a few full breaths and when you're ready, opening your eyes. Part of what we say yes to is that maybe we don't feel joy or maybe we feel tired or maybe we're in a reaction in some other way. So you start right where you are over and over again. That's the good news. You can't do it wrong. It just, whatever's going on, start right there and see if there can be some way of befriending that in that moment. So that's part one, saying yes to how it is in the moment. Now the next part that I mentioned which is part of what's in the moment, is this infinite possibility. This, it's sometimes called the creative fertile void, that in any moment, if we let go of our thoughts, there's this whole universe of what's possible that can be happening. And so it's in this moment, there's possibility, there's change, there's a formlessness of what's unmanifest and transcendent. And here's how C.S. Lewis put it. He says... All joy reminds. It is never a possession. Joy intuits what is about to be, intuits what has always been, the original nature, truth of wholeness. So what this means to say is, and I again invite you just to check in, is if you get very present, and for some it helps to close your eyes, putting aside any notion of what the future is, what your patterns are, what your expectations are, and just begin to notice the existence right here of possibility, of the unmanifest. Joy is so vast that it includes the sense of what is yet not yet manifest, the infinite creative possibility that is absolutely vibrantly in this moment, the unborn and yet possible. Story for you, you can open your eyes. The Uruguayan political prisoners may not talk without permission or whistle, smile, sing, walk fast, or greet other prisoners, nor may they make or receive drawings of pregnant women, couples, butterflies, stars, or birds. One Sunday, Didaco Perez, school teacher, tortured and jailed for having ideological ideas, is visited by his daughter Malay, age five. She brings him a drawing of birds. The guards destroy it at the entrance of the jail. On the following Sunday, Malay brings him a drawing of trees. Trees are not forbidden, and the drawing gets through. 
Dadako praises her work and asks about the colored circles scattered in the treetops, many small circles half hidden among the branches. Are they oranges? What fruit is it? The child puts her finger to her mouth. Shh, she whispers in his ear. Sally, don't you see? They're eyes. They're the eyes of the birds that I've smuggled in for you. (laughs) This life is a test. It is only a test. If it were a real life, then you would have been told and you would have been given more specific information about where to go and what to do. (laughs) So, in this second part of exploring joy, we not only notice what's here, but we sense the potential. We sense the possibility and we're open to it. The opposite or shadow side is saying basically is believing our beliefs about what can't happen and about what's wrong with us. So it's just holding open this possibility. And you can sense when you bring to mind a joyful person that openness to possibility. That there's still that availability. I think that may be a better way to put it. Availability. So the third that I mentioned is to cultivate the experience of joy as we recognize it. And what I've noticed is that our minds track the painful experiences and the what's wrong. So if I ask somebody, well, tell me about your week, often what's sticky, like Velcro, is what was difficult. And we tend to have many, many moments where there's not actually a lot of grasping and there's not aversion where there's a sense of ah, But we don't remember them or tag them. And we even have many moments where there's that sense of, of openness or possibility, but we don't pause. And so in this third domain, there's a training to pause and savor. And it's really missing in our culture. We steamroll through our lives as if we're racing to the finish line, you know, and then what's there? It's death, which is fine, that's that thing. But, you know, meanwhile, we're on our way somewhere, and this third domain is an invitation please pause, this sacred art of pausing, so that whether it's pausing, you hear the birds, and you just pause and just let it, let it move through you. Or when you're with somebody you're with all the time but you're used to your kind of habitual mode, pause and sense who is this. Sense the mystery that's looking out through those eyes is the same mystery that's who you are. We're so in the habit of locking into who we think someone is. That's not who they are. There's this awareness, this awakeness, this love. So rather than speeding through in this third domain, we stop and pause and appreciate. We savor the moments. It's totally not our habit to pause, so it takes some training, you know, and and it's not like an exaggerated thing of, you know, like trying to tell ourselves more stories about how wonderful things are. There's, I've got one cartoon that is these two monks sitting next to each other and one's really annoyed and he's looking over the other and he's saying, do you always have to scream ka-ching every time you feel one with the universe? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and it's not like one of these things like, oh, I'm feeling joy, yes, I'm going to tell... You know, it's, 
One of the uh, beloved teachers of many of the Western Vipassana crowd is Munindraji, who basically had one teaching, which is live the life fully. Live the life fully so that we're not racing through it. There's a sense when we pause of having the experience of enough. And that's, to me, really one of the great expressions of joy where, you know, that I could die now feeling, but it's just, just that, it's just like there's nothing that you're looking for more, there's nothing that's missing. And in that space, there's this kind of spaciousness where the little things become really beautiful. You know, there's different kinds of happiness and some's real revved up and, and you know, overstimulation of the senses, but then there's the happiness that Nietzsche talks about He wrote this in a rare moment of deep stillness. He said, For happiness, how little suffices for happiness. The least thing precisely, the gentlest thing, the lightest thing, the lizard's rustling, a breath, a whisk, an eye glance. Little maketh up the best happiness. Be still. So there's this appreciation for what is that we begin to cultivate and rather than be always busy on our way somewhere or solving problems or assuming there's so much to do, we start pausing. I like reading this poem, Tripping Over Joy, because I think Haviz, the poet Haviz, says it so well. What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I am afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. So again, we'll just do a brief reflection on this one. And we've talked about arriving in the moment and getting this deep capacity to say yes, even to what seems like the worst parts of our psyche. And discovering when we say yes that that self-sense dissolves and we become that space. And then sensing in this presence the possibility, that there's infinite possibility, that you don't know what's going to happen tonight or tomorrow. There's possibility for really freedom of the heart, to love, to be intimate, to celebrate. That we can wake up out of the patterns of the little self and discover the mystery that's here. That's the second. The third area is this pausing to appreciate just what's right here, to appreciate the life that's here. Enough. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. 
until now. So sustaining your presence, which is lovely, just opening your eyes if you'd like. This is the last part of the exploration, which is that we awaken joy by expressing it. So it's not only that pausing and feeling it, but by expressing our joy. And the person who said it best is Rumi. He says, let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. We have many, many ways of expressing our joy. And for some it's dancing and for others it's poetry and for others it's music and for others it may be that we laugh or we pray or we share our wonder with others. On some way, when we express joy, we're offering a blessing. It's like this contagiousness, like ice cubes are melting and other ice cubes get to melt too. Well, when our joy, that radiance happens, it's like it invites out the radiance of others. It reminds others. So I'd like to close with a story that to me expresses the spirit of joy in all these different elements. And um, it's a little bit longer, but I think you'll appreciate it. This is written by Naomi Shahib Nye who's a a Palestinian-American woman. It's called Wandering Around an Albuquerque Airport Terminal. (laughs) Okay, so sit back and enjoy. After learning my flight was detained four hours, I heard the announcement, if anyone in the vicinity of Gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person, talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly. Shudawa, shubiduk, habidi, stani, stani, shway, midfalik, shobit. Anyway, she talks for The minute she heard any word she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, no, we're fine. You'll get there, just late. Who's picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. We called her son, and I spoke with him in English. Told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her, southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons, just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad, and he spoke, and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had ten shared friends. (laughs) Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? (laughs) This all took up about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, answering questions. She had pulled out a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag, and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There are no better cookies. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, non-alcoholic, and the two little girls from our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around serving us all apple juice. 
and lemonade, and they were covered with powdered sugar too. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So we explore this capacity of our heart, not because we should feel joy, but because it's part of our, part of our heart to feel that when we relax, when we stop racing around so fast, when we say yes to what's difficult, and when we open to the possibility. This can be a shared world. We can wake up from being afraid of each other, and we can bring a healing to this earth. So we'll take the last few moments, if you will, just to close your eyes again. Give yourself that gift of relaxing and of trusting the goodness of your own heart. the fullness of joy comes in offering blessings. So I'd like to invite you to bring someone to mind in your life who might be having good fortune in some way. Somebody that's happy about something, things are going well. just sense how this might feel for them and how you feel towards their happiness. Offering your blessing. May you prosper, be joyful. May you appreciate the blessings in your life. Feeling your heart touch that person's heart with sympathetic joy. And feeling your own heart and wishing the blessings of joy right here. Imagining yourself 
feeling joyful, imagining the possibility of resting in that open space that says yes to this life, that trusts your beingness. And just offering the blessing, may I fully experience the awakened heart. May I know loving presence as my deepest nature. And may this life be an expression of loving presence. final verse that may we'll use as a closing for the night is this living I don't know why dying I don't know when going I don't know where I'm amazed I'm so cheerful (laughs) namaste so thank you for your attention hope you can join us next week for the final of the series The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.